Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. We have been in a series leading up to Easter, talking about the last really few days of Jesus's life. Uh, We know uh, just in the inner workings of our human experience that last moments matter. Uh, whether it's the last phone call that you had with a loved one before they passed away, whether it was uh, the last time that you spent with uh, your high school senior before they graduated high school and you, were, you knew that there was a season coming to an end, right? How many parents, you're kind of in that boat right now. You're looking at a senior and you're like, this is coming to an end and they're going to college and it's going to be tough for you to let them go. Maybe it's only gonna be tough for you for like a day and then it's gonna be like a party, but it will be tough for you for a little bit, right? Uh, if I... I think of last moments and it makes me, it stirs me a little bit emotionally. It stirs me spiritually to go, what are the things that I want to impact or leave behind if I were to suddenly not be here anymore? And we have that luxury looking back on Jesus' life. He knew these were his last few days on earth. And so the things that he did, they should be heightened in some sense. Not that, I mean, all of Jesus' work was amazing and significant, but there's something poignant and powerful about these last few days of his ministry and his life. And so we looked at his last sermon, his last teaching. I thought Katie did a great job showing us just the the weight uh, and the finality of eternity. We also got to look at last week, uh, Jesus' teaching at the Last Supper and the church's first communion. And, And this powerful time where we get to come and remember what Christ has done and encounter him powerfully in the present as we long for a future day, one day, that he's gonna come and restore all things to be as he intended from the garden. This week, what we're gonna do today is we're gonna try to consider Jesus' last night. And specifically, we're gonna look at the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we do that, uh, I just wanna acknowledge that this is a, this is a weightier message today. And I, I could use all the prayer from you guys today. Somehow we're gonna emotionally turn this from Garden of Gethsemane all the way up to Palm Parade at the very end. And it's gonna be amazing. The little kids are adorable and they got their palm branches. We're gonna sing Hosanna. It's gonna be great. But again, there's something right about sitting in the pain and the suffering of Gethsemane, the crushing that Jesus endured and went through on our behalf as we then turn that up to praise and adoration for King Jesus and what he's done for us. Amen. So I wanna do something a little different today. Um, I would love to stand as we honor the reading of God's word because I would love for us to, I'd love for us to feel what we're reading today. The Garden of Gethsemane, if you can picture it, it's not, it's not your garden in your backyard. It's not your raised beds or whatever you have going on in your backyard. Uh, think of it more like a park. It was a place that Jesus would have frequented in his prayer time. It was an area where there were uh, olive trees all around, and he would have been familiar with this place as a place of prayer. And it's right after the Last Supper. We don't have the exact time frame, but it's sometime late into the night after he's just had this profound teaching at the table. And then he goes and he dismisses and he comes into this garden where this is where we, this is where we pick up the story. I'm going to be reading in my Bible at the ESV. If you have your Bible, you can read along or it'll be on the screen as well. You can even close your eyes if you want to just kind of picture what it would be like to be with Christ in this moment. It reads, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, 
If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. And again, he came back to his disciples and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep, take your rest later on. You see, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Go and have a seat. So we have just this weighty moment here where Jesus is bringing some of his closest friends with him into this garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means the olive press. It is the crushing place. It is where um, olives would have been pressed and squeezed so that oil could be released for the use of somebody else, for the benefit of somebody else. And metaphorically, that's exactly what we have. Jesus beginning to enter into the final moments of his life. This is really when uh, the, the crucifixion begins sort of here in Gethsemane, where he begins to feel the reality and the weights of everything that is about to unfold for him over the next several hours. He's beginning to be sorrowful, sorrowful even until like to the point where he feels like he's going to die. Literally, if we, we read Luke's version of this, you can read it in Luke 22. It says that Jesus became so overwhelmed with emotion, so overwhelmed with sorrow that an angel of the Lord had to come and minister him because he, he almost didn't live through this part of the story. He, he was crushed. He was so filled with this anguish and this torment that he actually began to weep so heavily that he produced drops of blood out of his very own skin. Now, like I, I've said this before, I've had good cries and I've had ugly cries, but I have never had bleeding out of my face cries, right? Like this is, this is anguish like the epitome of it. And, and, and what we see, I, I love that Jesus comes after gathering with all 12 of the disciples. One of them is gonna betray him, Judas. And now he comes and he takes with him Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. And these, I find it so um, ironic and find it so comforting that they're the same close friends that were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because theologians will actually come to this part of the story and they will wrestle so much with Christ's humanity because of his aversion to pain, that they'll miss sometimes his deity. But the same three disciples that he called with him into the crushing place were the same three that were up on top of the mountain of transfiguration with him. When they saw him as close to his fully God form, they got to see him in his fully human form because he is both God and man pressed into one person walking the streets of this earth, walking the streets of Jerusalem, frequenting the garden of Gethsemane. He goes to Gethsemane and Judas probably knows at that point that that is where he's going to send the Roman officials to arrest him because he was so familiar that Jesus would have, been, would have been up in the morning early before the sun broke. This is where you could find him praying. He knew that he would be here. Jesus is not trying to escape his arrest in any sort of way. He walks right into his betrayer's hands knowing that this is exactly where Judas is going to betray me. And the weight of it all just seems to fall on him in a moment. It's, it's crazy to me that Jesus walks his whole ministry, walks his whole life knowing that this moment is coming. Yet for some reason in this moment specifically, the emotion becomes overwhelming to him. I, I love just the word picture of that idea overwhelming. I think of uh, Mr. Incredible in the original Incredibles. Y'all seen that movie, right? 
you don't have kids in your house, that's okay. Let me tell you what happens. Um, Mr. Incredible, right, he can, he like runs and throws people through walls and he's uh, unstoppable, a force of just brute strength, right? And then he's running out to get that secret little code and that little platform and that underground little layer situation, right? And that black ball hits him and it becomes sticky and he like can't get it off of him. And then there's like all these balls that come and they start peppering him. And he's just, the last scene, right, is just this like black caving in. It's this idea of just being completely overwhelmed, completely overrun, unable to move, paralyzed with what you're wanting to do, trying to do. None of it matters because of the press that's happening from the outside in. And some of you feel this exact way in your life right now, where just the weight of it all has you even wondering how you're going to get out of bed the next day. Whether it's the fracture in a relationship with somebody that you love, whether it's something that somebody else has done to you, some act of injustice done towards you, or, or whether it's uh, the, the loss of a loved one, a diagnosis you can't comprehend, the, a situation, a circumstance that feels insurmountable. And the weight of all of it emotionally, the weight of all of it spiritually in your soul is just so crushing that you just feel paralyzed, unable to do anything else. And that's this moment that Jesus is having where he's so overcome with sorrow, even though just chapters before this, it says that Jesus had his, fl- his face set like flint towards Jerusalem. He knew he was going to Jerusalem to die, but now all of a sudden that it's starting to unfold in front of him, he begins to just cave. He begins to buckle. He begins to ask, God, if there's any other way, would you let this cup pass from me? Yet, not my will be done, Lord, but yours alone. Jesus, I wanna ask the question this morning, what is it that Jesus is going through here specifically? Because all of his life he predicted of this moment, and yet in this On these pages and these few scriptures here that we read, all of a sudden now Jesus is in a totally different emotional spot than where he was before when he talks of his crucifixion. So what's going on? And then I want to ask what we can learn from what Jesus endured. It's important for us to understand the meaning of grace when we look at the Garden of Gethsemane. Because I think all too often what we do as Christians is we, we define grace in maybe a circumvented kind of way where we say it is God simply turning a blind eye to our sin. And certainly we have passages where we see that God has cast our sin. Once we've put in our faith in Christ, God has cast our sin now as far as the East is from the West. But what we can't do is we can't cheapen that grace to say that God is just turning a blind eye and pretending like we never did anything wrong. That's sometimes, I think, how we understand the grace of God. In Romans 3.23, we're all familiar with the first part of this verse. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The term there for fallen short is literally like if I was an archer, and there was, a, there was a target sitting over on that wall and I drew an arrow and I released it. The, the mark that I'm supposed to be hitting, the target that I'm supposed to be hitting is God's perfect right holiness that he has planned for my life. But as, as I draw that back, as I release my life, as I follow through to try to live up to that standard, all of us have fallen short. None of us have hit the mark. All of us have gone astray in some way. All of us have rebelled against God's good right ordering of the universe in some way. He's, he's provided us gifts and we, and we have neglected him. He's called us to do certain things and we've been disobedient. He's called us not to be certain things while we've gladly participated in those things that he said, this will only lead you to death and we turn a blind eye towards him and we follow along anyways. All of us have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. Every single person in this room. And what we can't miss when we say that is then we go to the next verse and we say, and we are justified by his grace as a gift. I think if we read that, we don't notice there, it's a comma and it's not the end of a sentence. But if we read that, we think that God's grace to us is just that he, he forgives our sins. 
praise God. And he doesn't hold us accountable to our past. And we just say, oh, God turned a blind eye. What that would potentially do is render God completely unjust rather than seeing him as rightly just. Because if you think about it this way, if I was guilty or if somebody standing on the stage who was guilty of rape and they had stolen something so innocent, taken something so beautiful, so pure from another person and, and they had stolen that from them and we say, well, God forgives that person. He just turns a blind eye to their sin. Is that just at all of our God in heaven? No, because the victim of that sin is still sitting there dealing with all the ramifications of that sin. And so to say something like God has just turned away from our sin, not to see it anymore, without understanding that it's not just this free pass, it's a free pass that came at the cost of something else. So instead of diverting the punishment that was due to our sin, it got, it got diverted to another direction that is on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what we have to understand. You read the rest of the sentence, it says, through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Don't be afraid of that word. I Googled it this week. You can Google it this week. It's just a payment of our, for our sins. It's, it's this atonement theology that we understand, just like the Passover lamb. The, the angel of death did not pass over the Israelites' household just because he felt like it. It was because he could see that a sacrifice had already been made, that blood was already on the doorpost. In the same way, Jesus, our propitiation, he is the payment. He is the one who takes, he is the one who absorbs all of the punishment, all of the suffering that is due to the sin in this world. God does not turn a blind eye to sin. Rather, he pours out the punishment on Jesus Christ. And that's why Isaiah can, and can, can articulate for us that it was the will of the Lord to crush him so that the releasing of the crushing would be so that there would be many offspring in his name. So Jesus, in this moment in the garden, is the olive being crushed. And what's being released is this oil that is now preserving, that is now saving, that is now lighting up our hearts to have faith in him so we can take hold of the promise that he has for us, which is perfect righteousness in his name. Because what we have when God crushes Jesus on behalf of our sin, what we have is we now have the perfect righteousness of Christ given to our name. So we're declared innocent and we're declared perfect, not by God turning a blind eye to sin, but by taking that punishment and putting it on the cross of Jesus Christ, by Jesus willingly laying his life down so that we can be declared innocent in his name. Because look, as it keeps going in Romans 25 and 26, it says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier Jesus in a moment, God in a moment is perfectly just in upholding the payment for sin, but he's also willingly laying down his life to be the justifier of those sins. It, this is amazing. This is, this is the gospel. This is the beauty of what we come in here and sing about and gather for. It's because our sin has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and those who are faithful, following after him, loving him, we have been declared free in Jesus' name. Amen? It is because he is just and the justifier for the one who has faith in Christ. Paul writes it this way in the book of Galatians. He, Jesus, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. We are all blinded by the God of this age. We're all caught in this present evil age, but he gave Jesus to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. When the apostle John writes about what Jesus did on the cross, he says this, this is love. Let me define love for you. Love gets so jacked up in our modern definitions of how we use it. But John says, no, no, this is love. That we, not that we've loved God first. 
Yeah, we come in here and we sing about God's, how much we love him and how grateful we are for him, but this is what actually love is. It's that he loved us first. Our love is simply a response to the love poured out by the Father in Christ. And so our love just says, God, let me be a reflection of what you've already done. It is not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. I love that B.B. Warfield, he's an ancient theologian. He says it this way, probably not ancient. 1800s isn't ancient. It just feels ancient, right? Late 1800s theologians, he says, Jesus lived under the shadow of the cross. The prospect of his suffering was a perpetual Gethsemane for him. Jesus knew that his whole life was to point to, to be anchored in this moment where he would give his life as a ransom for many, the payment for many, to set those who would come to him in faith free from the bondage and captivity of sin, free from the bondage and captivity of this present evil age. This is Jesus. This is why we celebrate on Easter Sunday because he's paid it. He's paid the bill in full. And now the righteousness that sat on his shoulders now rests on us. This is why Jesus in this moment is so filled with agony because he's feeling the payment for all of our sin, past, present, and future. It's as if he's looking through time. He's seeing the things that you're doing. He's seeing the sin and the consequence of your sin and the mistakes that you're making. And he's saying, I'm taking that with me to the cross and I'm gonna bury it in the grave. This is our Jesus. This is the payment that he made on our behalf. And Jesus, I think, doesn't just show us the freedom that we gain from this. We'll, we'll talk more about this on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday, but what I want to do for our time today is I want to consider how he showed us in a, in a blueprint sort of way how to endure the crucibles of our own life. Because every single person in this room, at one time or another, you will be faced with your own Gethsemane. You will be faced what feels like your own crushing, where the Lord has, maybe it feels like he's forsaken you completely where you can't see his plan, where you're having to surrender in some way going, God, I don't know what you're doing. Please let this go away. Please take this from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours, O oh Lord. This, this is, listen, this is not the prosperity gospel this morning. I can promise you that, right? And the church said, yeah, yikes. Okay, here we go. So how do we endure the crucibles of life? I think our savior shows us a few key steps that all of us need to know. The first thing that we have to do is we have to bring our emotions to God. You notice that Jesus, when he's in the garden, it says he went and he goes to Gethsemane. He says to his, his disciples, sit here while I go over there. In Luke's account, we see that he's maybe just a stone's throw away from the disciples. So I don't know how far you could throw a stone. I could probably throw one farther than most of you could throw a stone. I got a pretty good arm. Uh, but even still, like I could still probably be not so far away from Jesus as one of the disciples that I can't hear him crying out in anguish. I can't hear him weeping. I can't hear him filled with sorrow. I would have heard him yelling. And yet the disciples' response is to simply just to fall asleep. Now, how, like, how do they fall asleep? I understand if you're like called to 24-hour prayer, you're doing the Kansas City IHOP situation where you got to pray 24 hours a day and they're just trying to steward day and night prayer. And I think it's beautiful. But like, I have done 24 hours worth of prayer. We have done that as a church before. I've taken an hour slot. Jesus didn't ask them to pray all night. He asked them to keep watch with him for one hour and they fell asleep. Listen, you can pray for one hour. You can. And when we do a 24-hour prayer thing, again, you take an hour slot in the middle of the night and you will see God will give you things to pray about and you can stay alert. Keep watch for one hour. But the disciples, they start falling asleep. While it says, meanwhile, that Jesus was filled with sorrow, he began to be sorrowful and troubled and notice that his response is to take that sorrow and bring it to the Father in prayer. We have to learn how to bring our emotions into the presence of God. 
to say, God, this is how I'm feeling. Uh, I, and it might not be, listen to me, I'm not talking about all the Christian feelings that you're supposed to be feeling. Joy is our default. Yes, it is, and amen. We believe that joy is our default. We've been saved and set free. How can we not have a disposition of joy that's in us, unshakable? And yet, sometimes what I feel isn't feeling like joy. It's anger. I'm frustrated. I'm grieved. I'm languishing. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And Jesus shows us, bring that sorrow to the foot of the cross. Bring it to God himself. Psychologists have coined this term, spiritual bypassing. And it's where a lot of like what Christian people, what we can do sometimes is we, what we try to do is we try to just sprinkle the happy, feel good, go lucky verses onto every little difference, like heartbreak of our life. And guess what? It doesn't actually help us grow. If you just are, are someone has just lost a child, they've miscarried, whatever has happened, you just go, well, you know, God has good plans for you. I've seen it somewhere there in Jeremiah, plans for good and not for evil. And in a, it's like, man, the, hey, that's a true verse, but it's just not helpful right now. Sometimes the best thing that you can do to someone who's sitting in grief is not try to bypass what's happening with all of your little spirit-sprinkled verses that you love to just throw on there, but rather just sit in the pain with them. Go, I don't know what God's gonna do with this. I don't know how he's gonna turn and make it for good, but I trust that he will, and I wanna sit with you in the middle of this pain. Can we bring that pain, bring that emotion to the foot of Jesus? Pete Scazzaro, if you haven't read his book on being an emotionally healthy disciple, you should look up his stuff. One of the things that he is famous for saying is you cannot remain, you cannot grow in your spirituality and become spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And we think of emotional immaturity as just like, oh, well, if I'm emotionally mature, then I'll just have a disposition like Tigger and I'll just be happy all the time. That's not what he's talking about. Actually being emotionally mature is being in touch with even the bad emotions, understanding grief and how it feels to be grieving, understanding what it means to be feeling sorrow, feeling joy when you should feel joy, yes, but also feeling languish when you're exhausted. All of these emotions have been given to us by God, but it's to bring them to him to say, God, I'm feeling this way. He already knows you're feeling that way. We bring it to him and go, God, help me. I don't know what to do. And as we bring our emotions to God, we should also be mindful that Jesus brought his desires to God as well. Notice that Jesus' desire for a moment, this is how, again, we know that he's human because it is inhuman to lay your hand on a hot stove and just leave it there while your skin sears on the stovetop, right? You would either say that person's psycho or they have some sort of nerve disorder where they don't feel pain. But Jesus, in this moment, he starts to feel the sting of the spiritual weight of what's happening in this moment. He starts to feel the sting of the crucifixion that's coming his way. He's feeling this pain and he recoils. He comes back, he says, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible at all, I know that my whole life has been pointing towards this moment, but I'm having this moment right now, God, where I just want to go, I don't want to do this anymore. Is there any other way that we can get out of this? I want to back out. And I just think our spirituality can be stunted at different times if we don't bring our will to God to say, God, I know that's what you want me to do, but I just don't want to do it. I just don't. I don't feel like doing that right now. I don't want to talk to them about you right now because it's going to make things at work uncomfortable from now on. I don't want to invite them to church because they're going to treat me different whether I like it or not. I, I want to do this thing that is fueled by my lust. I want to. I have this desire. And we bring that desire. We, we are so Christianized in the way that we've learned to pray that we feel like those kinds of desires don't belong in our prayer time. But can our prayer look like, God, I desire something that is not of you and I'm not sure where to go from here. And as we bring our emotions to God, and as we bring our desires to God, it's most important that we do this last step. And that's what Jesus did, where he surrenders his will to God. 
So in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our pain, when we're in the middle of our own crushing place, we go, God, nevertheless, I may not understand. I don't know what you're doing with this, but I don't want to do what I want to do. I want to do only what you want for my life. Not my will be done, O Lord, but yours. And when we do that, when we bring our emotions and our desires and we submit our will to the feet of Jesus, what we will find is that it's not that he's just going to deliver us instantly from the crucible that you're facing. You still might feel the crushing. The cancer diagnosis may not come back as remission. The person may not live through the diagnosis they've been given. The relationship may not mend and come back together perfectly. I cannot promise you today that following after Jesus is going to make all the difficult parts of your story go away. But what I can promise you today is that the pain will always, if you let it, it will deepen your trust in Jesus. And that's the most important thing that he could give to you. It's the most important thing that he could give to you is a deeper trust and a deeper understanding that we don't serve a God who is distant from pain himself, but rather he stepped into the brokenness. He stepped into the pain to take the crushing so that we don't face any temptation that he didn't face himself personally. We don't follow a God who's unrelatable. We don't follow a God who's distant. He chose to live out the human experience so that when we're grieving, when we're feeling lonely, when we're despaired, we know that Jesus went through it all first and that we know will comfort us, will meet us in the middle of our own pain because God is not leaving us. He's not abandoning us and forsaking us, but rather he's walking through it himself personally. I think one of the biggest temptations that Jesus faced in this part of the story, right? Like we, we, we give all the press to Jesus facing the devil, uh, being tempted in the desert, right? And yeah, like you know, I think the craziest part of that whole story is it ends and Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and the next verse says, and he was hungry. It's like, well, yeah, understatement of the year, right? If I don't eat for like 12 hours, I'm hungry. You know what I'm saying? He fasts for 40 days and he's hungry. He's tempted with bread. He's tempted with power. He's tempted to get out of all this different situation. But I think one of the greatest temptations that Jesus faced is when he's on the cross and they're mocking him, crying out, you saved others, can't you save yourself? And what's the truth of that question? He absolutely could have saved himself. He said, don't you think I could just call on my father who's in heaven and he would send legions of angels down to rescue me right now? He has this temptation laid before him. Jesus, why don't you just get down and short circuit everything that you have tried to accomplish thus far? Why don't you just come down to the cross and then we'll believe you? And I think it's the great temptation of every middle-class American churchgoer today that one of the biggest fights that we as believers are gonna face is to step ourselves down from our own cross and to try to save ourselves from our own situation instead of letting the pain, the crucible, the crushing do its work so that we might desire him more deeply. And I wish I had better news for you this morning. I wish I could stand up here with integrity and say, God will make you wealthier if you just give and God will give you health if you would just do this. But that's not the God that we serve. The God that we serve says, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you won't fear evil because I will be with you. He promises his presence for us. He promises to be with us in the middle of the crushing. And here's the news that I can give you this morning. Even in the midst, man, it was just a crazy week emotionally, wasn't it? Like I, I have kids in our school system here in Thompson School District. And on Wednesday morning, we hear about what's happening at Loveland High. And it seems like complete, complete chaos, complete brokenness. I don't, I don't know what's going on. And then we see on Friday morning that there is now no school over at Res, And there's no school over at LCS. And I'm sitting there going like, well, do we send our kids to school today? 
And as I'm trying to explain to my 11 and, and nine and five-year-old, I'm trying to explain, yeah, there's these threats, but they're not really substantiated, but yeah, there's these things that could happen. I don't have anything to offer them other than, and even if something terrible does happen to you, you have hope in Jesus Christ that he has a forever promise to you. I can't promise that this life is gonna be easy. I can't promise to you that this life is gonna be free from pain. In fact, I can guarantee the opposite. It's gonna be like hell some days. It's gonna be like you're being crushed some days. But the guarantee from our Savior, Jesus Christ, who walked through the Garden of Gethsemane, compelled only by love itself, loves you and he cares for you. And even if your life falls apart tomorrow, he has a eternity secured for you in heaven where, he's gonna be, where you're gonna be free of sickness and pain, free from the penalty and the consequences and the shame that comes with sin. He is guaranteed for you this life where he's gonna restore all things to make them as beautiful and perfect as he intended them to be. It doesn't guarantee that the crushing from today is gonna relent, but Jesus has showed you how to get through it. And he showed you that he will always be near to you in the middle of it. He promises to be near to you in the middle of it. I don't know what the crushing looks like for some of you, but I just look at the agony that Jesus faced in this moment where he's so distraught, an angel has to come pick his face up. The God of the universe has his face buried in his own mud and dust, lifting him up and strengthening him for just another moment so that he can make it to the cross where they crucify him and they kill him. He was abandoned by his friends. Those that had pledged to follow with him, even unto death, they'd left him, they'd forsaken him. He was all alone sitting by two people he were complete strangers while he died so that you could know, that you could know that those who are putting their faith in him will be with him together in paradise, as the thief says, as he says to the thief. Jesus says, John 10, I'm the good shepherd. Good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me. That, that verse makes me more and more grateful for our name all the time. Uh, you know, sometimes I can get a little ungrateful for the name Good Shepherd because people think we're Lutheran or we're Catholic. I don't know how to explain it to them, but it's like, you know what? No, we're just, we're just a John 10 church. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Following after the Good Shepherd and the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays it down for his sheep because he cares for them, because he loves you. He gave his life up for you because he cares so deeply about you, your whole person, it says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that, that I might take it up again. Nobody takes Jesus' life from him, he says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. The author of Hebrews writes it this way. It says, looking to Jesus, who is the founder, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the, what's that word? Joy just doesn't make any sense with the story we're reading today, does it? It says, for the joy set before him. Why is there joy set before him? Because he knows that in his crushing, he will create a whole new family on this earth. He will have a whole new different set of brothers and sisters, thousands of years from the time that he gave his life, sitting in this room today that love him and that he loves deeply. And so for the joy set before him, he has these faces in mind. You look around this room, he has these people in mind and the relationship with them the, the beauty of being with them, that is the joy that set before him. And it's the joy that set before him. That was how he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how do we get through our suffering? It goes on to say, we consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. If you are weary this morning, if you are faint this morning from whatever life is pressing in on you, my only invitation is to consider this. Jesus endured it 
with you. Jesus endured it before you. He invites you to look at him while you press on through your suffering. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of, sh to the point of shedding blood. Band, you can come on up. We'll get going to the palm parade. Because here, yeah, I just heard like a chuckle because it's like, man, how do we, how do we tie these two thoughts together? We're about to watch adorable cuteness roll through this room while we, they wave palm branches in the hand, right? And it's, it's, it's a song that we're gonna sing and it's this thing we do every year where we just sing out Hosanna. Hosanna, that word, what it means is God save us. God save us. And so here's, here's my invitation to you. If you're in the crucible of life right now, sing out Hosanna. Ask God to deliver you. Pray that he would save you. Cry out to him and ask him because guess what, church? He loves you. His love for you was the only sustaining force through Gethsemane. It was the only thing holding him up to the cross. It wasn't the Roman nails. It was his love and care for you. It was his vision for your life, your relationship that he would have with you. We have a savior that paid it all so that we wouldn't have to. That's the good news this morning. And we can sing about that until our vocal cords give out. We can sing about that all day long because Jesus has made a way. Jesus made a way for us to be right with God. And that is worthy of our worship, isn't it, church? Yes. And I want to pray before they come in here, before we get to see their beautiful little faces, can we ask the spirit of the living God to meet us in the midst of our pain right now and to help turn our pain, our sorrow into worship. Jesus, Holy Spirit, won't you come? We just ask that you'd be in this place today. God, would you minister to broken hearts? Your word says that you are near to those who are brokenhearted. And so God, would you come? Would you lift our eyes up, even if it's just for a moment, to see your beauty, to see your glory, to marvel at your salvation? Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that we get to celebrate your resurrection every single day. Thank you that we have been called into resurrection life. Thank you that we get to experience and we get to live into the hope and the promise and the security of your future that you've promised to us, Jesus. We love you and we worship you today. It's in your name we pray.